All right. So I've got two questions left. So I think we can do this and, and probably get on to, uh, uh, lesson 39. This, I think, right? We're on 38, right? Yeah. So last two questions of, of lesson 38. Now, um, we, we, the, it was question four, I believe, that asked, are there any contradictions in, in the Bible? And I, I came across something, uh, just, uh, a couple nights ago in, in, uh, I don't know if you can read that. Pauline Dispensationalism by, by Miles Stanford. And, um, so I just wanted to share that in, in, uh, regard to the question, uh, are there contradictions in scripture? Because I brought up the fact that if we fail to see certain important distinctions, we will find, um, not just small contradictions, but massive contradictions because we fail to see the, the proper distinctions. And this is what, um, this is what Stanford says. He's, uh, on the other hand, scripture is harmonized and its message clarified when two divinely appointed systems, Judaism and Christianity, are recognized. Their complete and distinctive characters are observed. No matter how orthodox they may be in matters of inspiration, the deity of Christ, his virgin birth, and the efficacy of his death, covenant theologians have not been forward in Bible exposition. And and that really probably is the key distinction that's often overlooked, is the difference between Israel and the church. And when we fail to see that distinction, we get into a whole slew of problems in terms of, um, you know, what as as the church, how, you know, um, what is God's plan and program for the church, um, end up in a big, in a big law system. So, so there's no contradictions in scripture, but if we, if we don't see the distinctions that are there, then, um, we're going to be living a very, uh, we're going to be trying to harmonize a whole bunch of, uh, whole bunch of contradictions. Um, that's one of the things I, I really noticed in this book as, as he kind of, um, he quotes he quotes a, a number of different uh, reform um, covenant guys, and then um, uh, speaks speaks to that and and that kind of like I liked what he said here. Scripture is harmonized and clarified when we see that distinction. But if we don't see that distinction, scripture isn't very harmonious. You're trying to you're trying to you know square circles all the time. So um, anyway, that just kind of added on to that, that last question. But um, question six here. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, no, I was just going to add to that, that, um, you know, I, I got caught up in, in that quite a bit when I first started studying the word. Um, you know, when it came to, to understanding the scriptures, harmonizing the old and the new Testament, um, I ended up relying on covenant theologians to help give me an outline for how that works. And that outline was a system, and that system was something that bared on the Old and New Testament outside of it. It it said, here's the system that these two large volumes need to, to fit within. We need to make sure we check off this point, and this point, and this point, and this point. And it's very harmonious within itself as a system. You know, covenant theology is harmonious in the sense that it fits their system. What it what it starts with is man's system as opposed to God's division of Israel and the church, and that was something that that took me a, a quite a bit of time to understand. But once that distinction was made, 
the harmony was was from God. It wasn't from my system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, we've spent a lot of time with different people, each of us, and folks come to us with a, a system in mind. And you kind of have to figure out where they're where they're thinking and how they've got things strung together. Um, but it's a it's it, it very much is a an important part of of how we teach and what we teach from the scripture and rightly dividing the truth with regards to Israel and the church. That's a still a big deal. You know, you think we would have solved it. Miles books and all the things that we, you know, we've been put together over the course of the years would, would solve this, uh, the distinction issue. But, um, it's very, it's looked down upon in many, many ways by a lot of quote unquote seminary trained theologians. It doesn't, like, why would God have just said it like it is? We've got to make sure we get it systematized first. Yeah. yeah adding to that, J.D., I remember, I remember uh, if you remember Wanda, Wanda was here, one of the older ladies who came from the Baptist church. And, yeah. you know, it, it, when I was teaching and <laughs> saying that the Lord's Prayer wasn't hallowed be thy name, it was more John 17. And she was she thought it was heresy heresy that they said that. And I think she even ran into Ingrid and, and Erica at, at some shopping center. And I think she was, do you know what your husband's teaching? Do you know, do you really believe in that? Uh, <laughs> you know, cause it was just like, no, that was, but if you look at the, the Lord's prayer, according to what everybody, you know, the, the reformed or whatever, it doesn't make sense. If, you know, to a, a believer who's been fully, all sins paid for all that, you know, when you, Look at the Lord's Prayer, and that's one of those contradictions. If you take that as the Lord's Prayer, and for us as as believers, that doesn't make any sense at all. And I just remember after a while, she, <laughs> the famous she went to a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and the guys, you know, said something about the Lord's Prayer, said, and she, no, no, John seventeen is the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she came fully convinced, but man, I was heresy. Oh yeah, I and, but that's one of those contradictions. If you don't understand, that doesn't make sense to a believer. Yeah. She yeah, all but beat, she all but beat you over the head with her purse. I know. She was, <laughs> well, she confronted Ingrid. Do you know what your husband's teaching? Do you really know what he's doing? Really? <laughs> yeah. It's uh, like going back to what you said, J.D., like the system – you know, of, of theological systems like reformed theology or, you know, whatever. Um, they, they have a consistency because as, as created, um, in God's image, we're, we're logical, rational beings and we have to have something. We can't, we can't really be that comfortable with contradictions. So essentially what, what happens within a system like that is they, they really have to ignore portions of scripture or really, you know, misinterpret them, um, so that their system remains consistent. But, but what they're doing is they're sacrificing scripture for the sake of the system. Um, whereas what we'd like to do is have a consistent understanding of scripture and have our system. If you, if we, you know, if we got, if we got to have a system, it should be what the word of God says, right? So, but yeah. So great, great, uh, well, there's even this, there's even, these, there's a pull for, for young people to even, after they understand this distinction, still gravitate back towards the quote unquote logical, you know, covenant perspective. 
Um, there's more books. There's more teachers. There's more. There's more churches that 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 teach and think this way. Reformed teaching is is by far the you know most popular in 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 many ways with the the Protestant you know evangelical realm. I would say reformed teaching is probably at the forefront of that. So you see, you have young people that understand this distinction but abandon it for a a more theological, you know, systematized, seminary um, stamped perspective. And we've, you know, Miles, you and I have seen a lot of buddies go that way over the course of the last several, you know, many years here now, 10 years yeah, or so. For sure. Well, here's a good question to take on to that. Why, why is reform teaching more popular? <clears throat> well, you know, you know, actually Miles on that one, I think it, it fits in perfectly because I think the reform that puts more on us, you know, just going back to the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be with, we, 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 we do it all. And, exactly. the, and the flesh loves that. It yeah. puts the flesh back in control. And yeah. it's earthly bound. We're, we're more, you know, <laughs> kind of gravitate to the earthly and, and all <clears> that. So the flesh just loves it. And yeah. so it, it, I think it's rampant because the flesh is so strong that it's willing to, you know, convince people that we really need to get on board. We really need to get to start doing something. And that's why I think it becomes popular. Mm -hmm. Because people don't understand from an identification, you know, position that, that, you know, (laughs) we're done. You know, it's now all upon the spirit and spirit working through us. So I think that's, uh, you know, it's just the flesh. I think that's really the key to the success of the reform. And covenant too, just all it, it, yeah. it's more on us as as humans. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think so. That's the flesh wants to be put on center stage, you know, and it's like that's what law will do. When you put yourself under a law system, it gets me it puts all the attention on me and what I can do, right? And that's all the that's really all the sin nature wants, you know. <laughs> just get me get me up there, get me active and get me some get me some glory, you know. And, um, I, I do think, I think that's why it's so popular. I think that's why, that's why what all the, you know, basically all the seminaries are teaching and all the students are learning and gravitating to, but. It's almost a religion of, um, scholastics or how can I say that? Scholastics. Yeah. yeah. That's one thing. I don't know. I didn't mark that quote here in, in this, in this book by Stanford. Um, but, uh, he, he talks about it as being an, Covenant theology being an intellectual, an intellectualism, but then he, he has some really great, great words he, he kind of put around that. I don't know, Mike, can you remember what he said in there about the intellectualism of, of covenant theology? But yeah, anyway, it's very intellectual, but he said it's a very, um, <clears throat> uh, oh, I can't remember his word now, but ba- basically it's, uh, a, a, a failed, you know, a failed intellectualism, you know, I mean, uh, it's just, it's just wrong. <laughs> I'll just say it that way. <laughs> well, if, you, if your focus is to rightly divide the word of truth, re- reform theology doesn't fit because you can't rightly divide it. But on the other hand, you know, people that come out of seminaries and seminaries, they create Controversy, so they have something to talk about. <laughs> and so, 
you know, I, and, and I notice that uh, uh, dispensational guys will do the same thing. You know, they'll debate major in the minors, you know. And so rather than just sticking with what God's word says. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that's good. I really appreciate that. Glad we tagged that conversation on to our last time together. But um, we, let's get to question six here. Um, how do we know that the Bible is the complete revelation from God? How do we know that the Bible is a complete revelation from God? And last week I introduced that question. And just as we were wrapping up and some people were starting to arrive here, and uh, one of my friends, I think, Mike, you would have met him, Martin. He was at our Bible study last yeah. week, that was. Um, I said, hey, Martin, did you hear that question? I said, I said, how do we know the Bible is a complete revelation from God? And he kind of thought for a second. He said, well, he said, I don't think God is is through with revealing himself. I said, you know what? I think you're right. I, I said, you know, the Lord will continue to reveal himself to us throughout eternity. But this, how do we know that the Bible is a completed written word of God, that, is that, if that makes sense. Um, and and Rido, he, he, this, this was an interesting one to me because I'd never seen this in, in Colossians 125 before. But if you, if you go to Colossians 125, um, Rido quotes this as the answer to that question. And um, it's Paul speaking there. And um, the, the, the translation, I didn't check which translation. Uh, oh, no, this is the Darby, Darby translation, at least that I put into my notes. Um, and, and, yeah, so if you, if we were to look at, um, in verse 25, he says, of, of which I was made a minister, uh, according to the dispensation of God, which is given me towards you to complete the word of God, to complete the word of God. And, and that was, that was really interesting, um, to me. I actually got into, you know, look, looking into that quite a bit and what Paul, what exactly Paul thought about, um, his, his ministry, um, and, and what the Lord was revealing through him. Um, when, when Rideout quoted that, I thought, okay, that's interesting because, there are other there are other authors of uh, of New Testament scripture and and Rido doesn't ignore that um, but he says that the other the other authors like like John for instance you know he wrote the the uh, the the last book um, and Rido says those were ministries that had previously begun and they were kind of com- continuing or wrapping up but but Paul was kind of the final word from God, so to speak, even though chronologically he kind of finished up writing and, and uh, went to be with the Lord before the Apostle John. Um, there was something about Paul's writing that was kind of the, the capstone of, uh, of what God was, would reveal. Um, but if we continue reading down in, in Colossians 1 there, um, I just wanted to get to, the, to verse 27, so I'll read... Now I'm in the NASB here. It says, um, uh, starting in verse 
26. That is the mystery. So this is what was being revealed. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, so Paul understood that the revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory, was the completion of the word of God. Um, and I, this, this came a couple, I, I mentioned last time that I'd been listening to Dr. McGee uh, at one point during the Christmas holidays, and so I put this in my notes back then, but um, I thought this was really good. He said, no word can be added to the word which is Christ. Actually, I'm not sure if that was McGee or if that was where I got that from. But uh, no, I, no word can be added to the word which is Christ. This, this is what Dr. McGee said. He said, why has God been silent for 1,900 years? Because Jesus Christ is the final word to man. He said, Jesus is the unabridged edition of God. Jesus is the fullest manifestation of the Father. And then we know that in John 14, 9, Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And... I think if we understand that that Jesus is the the fullest manifestation of the Father, what could be added? What could be added to that? You know, um, in, in other words, there's nothing more to write. <laughs> it's been said. You know, Jesus Christ uh, has has uh, has been revealed from the Father, and and. Um, and I think the Lord used Paul to most fully express that in, in his epistles. Just who who is this? Who is this Christ? What does this all mean? And um, and that revelation's complete. Um, Miles, so, yes. Another way to look at this is if you were to take Paul's writings out of the Bible. Yeah. What do you miss? What yeah. isn't there? The church. Church is not there. Grace isn't there. Grace, yeah. Identification isn't there. Positional truth isn't there. The yeah. body of Christ isn't there. Yeah. Um, the, the intimacy and union between the person of Christ and the members of the body of Christ isn't there. Holy Spirit. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. The Holy Spirit isn't there. That's right. Same way. That's yeah. Right. So... So yeah. if if the if the word of God is about the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Paul is the one who completes that uh, to the to the to the uh, believer in that uh, the fullness of who Christ is is in Paul's writings, and the re- work of the Spirit is in those writings. And even though, like Rideout says, that uh, Peter and and uh, John wrote later, they just were completing what was already put there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to read Peter and compare him to Paul. That Peter, I think, was always learning from Paul. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one of the one of the key verses for understanding that Paul is. Paul's writings are scripture on the same level as all scripture. It comes from Peter, yeah. you know, because Peter, Peter says, you know, as, as some things hard to understand, uh, you know, which, which the untaught distort as they do the rest of scripture. Yeah. And so it's actually this, this little note from Peter that we, we really see that, okay, yeah, that, you know, um, it's all, 
It's all on that level. And and then another thing with John and the Revelation is it's not a church book. No. It's you know I mean it deals with the church a little bit in the, in the beginning, and then the church is gone. That that book is the you know the last history book of what God's doing with with Israel primarily. I mean, and church doesn't come back in until the you know the last couple of chapters when we return to reign reign with Christ. And so there's, we see we see in that that the the connection we wouldn't we, we'd have a much harder time I think understanding the the interplay between the church and Israel if I if that's the right word if it wasn't for for what John had there about um, about the reign of Christ at the end but um, we I mean we could put some of those pieces together through through prophecy and that we know that the church um, rules and reigns with Christ in His kingdom but um, but that's I mean I, I look at the book of Revelation more so as as like a um, uh, kind of okay, but what about the what about the program with Israel? Is is that still you know still on the table? Is that still going to be completed? And it is. God's not going to God hasn't dropped that. But what, not, until the church is until the church is removed, that's that's on hold, really. Sure. So you know, Miles, I, I <laughs> this will never win an argument with anybody out there, or you know, when we can argue all these things. On this side of the cross, as as a a uh, believer, <laughs> I, I go down to because God God is sovereign, and He's I mean He's the one in control of all this stuff. And you know, for I, you'll never win an argument, but for me, God is sovereign, and He's allowed this <laughs> to be the complete revelation. And I have yeah. the utmost peace that we're not missing pieces. You know, that if we are, God would have exposed it and put it in there. And even to direct the canonization of the scriptures, you know, he was involved in that. He allowed it to be this, what we call the Bible today. And, you know, so, I I mean, I'll never win an argument outside of a believer, maybe, but he's sovereign. He allowed it, and this is what he he wanted revealed. And ultimately, that's, you know, the, the simplest that he has he has put this out and this is his word and you know the impact of his word we we heard something uh, I forget it was a focus on the family guy or something he was but he ha- how much Christ has influenced the world and when you think of you know and he went to, you know who he was and yet for over two thousand years now how much he has impacted the world and he said in music in everything everything Christ has influenced the world. And when you look at what his roots are and his, who he was earthly, it doesn't make any sense to have the impact that he's had on the world for 2,000 years in every aspect of the world. And so, you know, I think, again, getting back to it is just God is sovereign and he's allowed this to be his word, his revealed word. And, you know, it is finished. Mm-hmm. Simple, simple, simple logic. Yeah. Because God allowed it. Yeah. Well, you know, it really all comes back to faith, right? It's yeah. um, do we is the conviction that the Holy Spirit gives that this is my word? You know, do you believe me? <laughs> you know, do you take me? Do you take me at that? That that's that this is my word that I've given to you, um, and and it's complete. You know, I I always do find you know the note at the closing of Revelation, um, you know, pretty pretty conspicuously placed that you know that if anyone adds or takes away from this book. You know, um, it's like, yeah, it's a pretty clear note. This is this book is closed, kind of thing. You know, this is it. Um, if you add to this book, <laughs> you're, in, you're in big trouble, kind of thing. So, um, even even in the order of it, you know, that was kind of a 
new revelation when in Newell's book, how, you know, all of the books are laid out. They're not chronological. And it's, no. it's, it's Paul revealing more each and every time. And so even the way that the book is laid out is, is God's hand in it that, you know, mm-hmm. we, we progress through, uh, what Paul is revealing to us about us and the Holy Spirit and all these different things. And so, it wasn't just, okay, this book was written in 63, this is 64, this is 65. It isn't that way. So, I mean, even God had his hand in the order of it. And that, that I didn't realize that until Newell had that in his book. That I hadn't thought about how it's, you know, I just kind of stupidly thought it was all chronological, but it's not. So, yeah. again, his hand is very evident in the canonization of the scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I often think of that. I get the Gospels. Which most people in the church want to want to think, you know, are, are spoken to the church. It's really not. It's it's messages to Israel, primarily, you know. And then you got the Book of Acts, which, if we didn't have the Book of Acts, how would we know, you know, what was what was this this transition, this change going on between Israel and the church? And then you have Romans, which lays out, okay, this is what the church is. And man, if that order wasn't the way it is, I mean, it would be pretty confusing otherwise so <laughs> well even even john in the gospels john is completely different but he was written after all of paul's epistles and right. his whole focus is is christ is the son of god he is deity and it's completely different than the other gospels and you know see so yeah. you know kind of i think is <laughs> here's all paul saying all this and now christ is who he said he was yeah yeah, absolutely. Well, on the note of that, who crisis who he says he, he was, let's look at question number seven. Uh, what does the author say must happen in order to understand Christ's humanity? I thought this was really neat. I, uh, I never really thought about it from, from the way that, uh, Rideout says it here. <clears throat> but do you guys catch a question? First I read the question, I was like, oh my, what, what, I had to kind of really go back and read. What did Rideout, what was he saying there? But what does the author say must happen in order to understand Christ's humanity. Um, if you, in the print book, it's at the top of page 212. Um, I didn't, I don't compare this to the PDF. I'm not sure what, if it said on there what the PDF page was at. Um, but it, essentially, I think as I, I kind of summarized his thoughts here, he says, we must first understand his divinity or we are foolish to speak of his humanity. We must first understand his divinity or we are foolish to speak of his humanity. And and I kind of thought, oh, that's really interesting because we tend to introduce Jesus Christ to people as Jesus, the baby born in the manger and grew up as a man and died on the cross. And oh, by the way, Jesus was God. You, you kind of know how, what I mean about that? Like, we, like, especially with kids, right? First, we teach them Bible stories and it's just Jesus, the man. And, you know, and then, oh, yeah, and he is God. And, and, and what Rido is saying here is that if we don't first understand his, divin- his divinity, it's foolish to speak of his humanity. Um, and I had to kind of think about that for a little while, but I, I wrote down, if Jesus is not God himself, well, then he's just a natural man, born, born uh, to a father in Adam like any one of the rest of us, right? And if that's true, then Jesus was born with a sin nature and was completely unqualified to be anything um, that that he was to be. Um, I think so, you're right, Miles. Go ahead. I, I'll give you a good example. 
if you if uh, there's all this uh, uh, promotion now for um, what's the movie about Jesus that's going around now? Um, chosen. The chosen. Yeah. It's all about his humanity, mm-hmm. and uh, it's done by uh, pretty much Mormon people who who don't understand or don't believe that Christ is God. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't connect perfection of godliness with the man, Jesus Christ, then you don't really know who he is. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. he, he's the perfect man. And the reason he is is because he's God too. May I ask a question? Yeah. Uh, concerning understanding Christ's humanity, do you think if people understood about the kinsman redeemer that that would help them understand why he had to become human? Yeah, it would help, I think, because uh, kinsman redeemer had to be somebody from your line. It had to be like us. Yeah, and uh, like uh, I couldn't redeem you because I'm not no. from your family. But Christ could redeem humanity because he became human. And God cannot die. That's so right. there had to be a redeemer who could die, who was one right. of us, right. so to speak. So you can't, you can't divide Christ up into 50-50. He's 100% right. or 100%. So he, you always, I think, have to treat him as one single God man. Yeah, like That's who he is. Schaefer says he's undiminished deity, undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. In one person forever. And I'm thinking if people don't understand why he became human, yeah. to me it seems like the kinsman redeemer uh, principle explains why it he does. has to be I agree. human. I agree. I think that's a beautiful thought there. That, that really yeah. does that really does tie it tie it together. Um, I, I, I kind of pondered on that a little bit in this past Christmas season here about, you know, um, God became man, you know, the flesh dwelt, dwelt among us, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about the, the virgin birth and, and stuff. And I, I guess I, I'm a bit of a, a bit nerdy. I don't know if think about biology and, and things like that, but um, you know, why, why was it that, that the savior God man had to be born of a woman, you know, well, just from just strictly biologically speaking, you know, no, a a female of any of any kind of any created kind cannot bear the offspring of another kind The God God structured the 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 creation in such a way that if she was going to bear and give birth to something, it was she could only bear and give birth to a to a true man. And so in the virgin birth and the fact that God didn't just, you know, transport Jesus down and poof into, into space, he was born of a virgin because so that so that man could see he is like us. He is a genuine man, 100 percent genuine man. But if we don't first understand that he is God himself, then then he's nothing but a but a regular man. And that's a massive problem. <laughs> For Miles, also, you know, 
Nick, Nick had somebody who was at work who said, no, Jesus wasn't fully God, you know, and so the, the verse is, uh, Colossians 2 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's kind of interesting when that way to think about what, what, uh, right out saying you're saying is <laughs> deity first and then body. It was fully, full, fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So yeah. deity is the focus before the bodily form. That's awesome. There's that other principle in Genesis that is hardly ever talked about, that God, in his creative acts, uh, if you were a creature that could procreate, you could only procreate after your own kind. Yeah. So coming down through all history, all of Adam's, progeny has to be procreated after his kind. He's a sinner. And so yeah. that's why God changed the, the race of men to be in Christ, because we as believers, really what happens is, is we call it born again, but that's really what happens. We are now uh, from the kind who is Christ himself. Yeah. He's the representative man, and and uh, I don't think that uh, that principle is talked about enough in terms of, and actually, when you think about it, that principle totally destroys reformed theology. Mm-hmm. Totally, because the law, yeah. they're trying to, they're just trying to apply the law to the old man. Yeah, you know, yeah, and and you're dead, you know. I, I, I'll share in closing, I came across this verse this morning in, in Zechariah that I thought, this is just, this is awesome and it ties in. Um, but you have God himself speaking and he says, I am coming, um, and I will dwell in your midst, um, declares the Lord. Sorry, this is uh, Zechariah 2. Did I mention the reference? I don't think I did. Zechariah 2, uh, starting in, in verse 10. I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And then jumping down halfway through verse 11, he says, Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And I don't know how the Old Testament Jew looked at that and said, uh, you know, oh, he's not God. <laughs> the Messiah is not God. It's like he says, declares the Lord, I will dwell in your midst, and the Lord is going to send me to you. It's just, I mean, we we can see it. We, you know, we're the Monday morning quarterbacks, I guess, but, but you know, couldn't be more clear that the Lord God himself will send him. <laughs> I'm yeah. sending me, you know. So really cool little verse there, but. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you you did uh, come, very God of very God, and and complete humanity at the same time. And Lord, we know that that is that is still uh, the the reality of the of the God Man Jesus Christ with whom we are united uh, in the heavenlies. And Lord, we look forward to. Uh, the, the rolling ages of eternity that we will, uh, spend in, in perfect unity with, with Him. And, uh, and thank you that we, uh, enjoy that today, this very moment. Um, and, uh, and nothing less than that. Let me just thank you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Miles. Good job. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed that. Great, great, uh, input from all of you.
Yeah. Hey, Ralph, we'll be praying for you and Carol. Mm-hmm. Really good stuff, Miles. I got a. Uh-huh. I'm stuck on uh, Colossians one twenty five through twenty nine. I think there's some really rich content there that I don't know that I've noticed it in the same way until um, you mentioned it. Maybe kind of discovering some of that a little bit more, but um, yeah, there's some really good stuff there. I also had a, a comment around like. Christ died an earthly death to give us a heavenly life. And that speaks to both his humanity and his divinity. He could not have put us on resurrection ground if he wasn't God, but he couldn't have died if he wasn't man. So, yeah. you know, how does, how does God's hypostatic union or the, the Lord Jesus hypostatic union play into my identification? And that's mm-hmm. how I, I see that. I like, there's the earthly problem of sin. I need the kinsman redeemer to solve my problem. And I know you need to get going, but. No, it's okay. I mean. But we go on from there. It's not just solving an earthly sin problem, um, that keeps us from having, uh, fellowship with the Lord. He solves a spiritual problem and he goes on to give us heavenly life. And mm-hmm. there's no other combination of, we, we couldn't have just deity and just man. We have to have that, that union of the two in order to have our problem solved. Otherwise our source remains in Adam and not the new, you know, not, not the last Adam. Yeah. He has totally to change our source. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, how can we have fellowship with God unless he is a fellow? I don't know. I mean, it's just like, right. We, we are felt. He is, he is of the same. Jesus Christ is of the same kind as us because of the, the, that the hypostatic union is right. Because he is fully God and fully man. We couldn't have that fellowship if we weren't of the same kind to, to have that that similar being if that makes sense yeah he died yeah. an earthly death to solve a spiritual problem um mm-hmm. it, ha- it had to happen on earth it had to be blood it had to be human yeah that yeah. mm-hmm. life yeah. so yeah oh. john does john speaks so much about that right like yeah, yeah. The other element of that is that uh, the whole purpose of God creating man was so that he could be with with God forever. Yeah. In order to be with God, you have to be righteous because he's righteous. And so that's, in essence, what the cross did. And when you believe in the personal work of Christ, you you get the righteousness of Christ, which means you're qualified to spend all eternity with him and not in the same the atmosphere. I mean, in the same room, face to face. Yeah, I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, God dwells in in unapproachable light. You know, he's he's this right because and and that hasn't changed. That is who God is, and yet with with Christ, that that unfathomable welding together, so to speak. I don't know how we even you know the, the of, of that perfect deity with with true humanity such and and it all has to do with the fact that it it allows us to have that intimacy with him that otherwise is just impossible you wouldn't have that's right actually finishing through the uh for the jew didn't the uh i mean they're explaining where the savior what lineage he would come out of so they knew that it had to come out of a human lineage yeah you know so they i mean how did, how did it come, you know, the Savior? Well, they said, what, line of David? And, you know, so it's yeah. fulfilled in that, but they, they knew it had to come from a human. So, yeah. 
Well, and it's kind of like Reformed theology. They, they developed a system. And they could see that they could see that he was going to be a man because he was predicted to come from these human lines. And so they understood, but they couldn't, I think most of them couldn't understand the fact that he could be God. So they see that in Zechariah too. And it didn't, it just, they just had to ignore it or brush it aside because it didn't fit because they couldn't understand that God would become fully man. Well, they, also, they wanted the Messiah to take over, you know, nuke, nuke the Romans, be the king. So they, yeah. they, were, look, they were looking for the, the guy who was going to, you know, solve all their woes and get rid of these Romans and do everything else. And it didn't fit what they wanted at the time, too. Yeah. No, their eyes were on earthly things rather than, than heavenly. Now, I mean, we know that they have earthly promises, right? The Lord will fulfill yeah. earthly blessings to Israel and so forth. And yet, nonetheless, your eyes are to be on Christ. I think whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, that's where your eyes are to be. And let him, and he'll take he'll take care of the details. Yeah. <laughs> care of those earthly blessings, but yeah. Good job, Miles. Thanks.